Today for our Leadership in Action interview, I'm delighted to be joined by entrepreneur and author Margaret Heffernan. I heard Margaret at a Discuss and Do talk recently and simply had to ask her to be interviewed for the series. Margaret has a cosmopolitan background, having been born in Texas, raised in Holland and educated at Cambridge University. She's enjoyed a long involvement in the world of media, having spent five years at the BBC, writing, directing and producing dramas and documentaries, working with programmes including Time Watch, Arena and Newsnight. She's also produced music videos for Virgin Records and the London Chamber Orchestra. Back in the States, Margaret has worked on award-winning public affairs campaigns and held CEO roles in a number of internet businesses. Her public appointments include acting as a trustee for the London Library and sitting on the council of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Margaret is also a prolific writer. Her books include The Naked Truth, Women on Top and Willful Blindness. And she regularly blogs for Huffington Post and CBS Money Watch, among others. Her latest book is due for release early next year. Hello, Margaret. It's great to see you again. How's life treating you? Uh, Life is treating me well. It's busy, uh, but busy is good. I mean, too busy, I'm learning, isn't good, but busy is good. Okay, glad to hear it. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your book, Winning Costs? Yeah, so Winning Costs very much came out of willful blindness. One of the things I looked at in willful blindness was the degree to which companies really copy one another. And, as I, and, and one of the reasons that the financial crisis has been so profound and so long-lasting is because it isn't that one bank did stupid stuff. One bank did stupid stuff and then all the other banks copied them. And I was really struck when I was writing that, that this is not what classic economic theory says will happen. What economists argue is that if you have a very competitive marketplace, that will drive companies and individuals to produce a wide range of different products. But in fact, what we saw was a very competitive marketplace in which everybody did exactly the same thing. And that really set off a train of thought around, well, how, in what other ways might competition work in ways that aren't accounted for in economic theory? and which we need to to challenge and question. Because there is, I think, um, you know, in most of the developed world, a fundamental belief that competitive markets work. And yet I would argue that over the last 15 years, we've seen competitive markets quite profoundly not work. Mm-hmm. And so I was really interested in looking at the ways in which competition doesn't deliver what we hope it will. And, um, and what some of the antidotes to that might be. Because one of the things that I think we found in, the, in what started as a banking crisis became a financial crisis, became an economic crisis, and has now become a political crisis, is that a lot of the fundamental assumptions we made about the world turn out not to be true. People don't make rational decisions. Markets aren't efficient, and competition doesn't necessarily allow the best to bubble to the top, and trickle-down doesn't work. So that seemed to me to call for a really kind of root-and-branch appraisal of competition, given that that's what we hope to drive outstanding performance. Mm -hmm. So how does that translate into the concept of blindness then? Well, I think one of the many things that competition does is it um, 
when you get involved in a very competitive relationship as an individual or as a company, you really get sucked into tunnel vision. Your range of thinking is profoundly constricted. And you are so determined, you know, to be the other guy or the other company that everything else pretty much vanishes from sight. So I think it's quite a profound driver of willful blindness mm. that, you know, if I'm company A and I want to beat company B, it's very easy for me to ignore everything else. Now, some people would call that focus and that's its upside. But I would argue that the downside of focus is blindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we see that all the time. And the reason that so many mergers and acquisitions destroy shareholder value is because the deal is done through an ego need to make the deal happen and people lose sight of the actual value that's going to come out of the the deal. So how should leaders make sure that they're not getting sucked into being willfully blind? Well, um, I think it's quite hard. I think obviously it starts with understanding that this is an inevitable byproduct of power. Um, I think you can guard against it, but I think um, I don't think it's a personality flaw. I think it's a structural flaw um, that comes about when you're in very powerful positions and when you're running very large organizations. So what do you do about it? Well, the first thing you have to do is ensure that you have people around you who are prepared um, to tell you the truth. And that sounds incredibly easy, and in fact, it's very hard. Um, It is in the nature of power that people want to please you, and because they want to please you, they will tell you what they think you want to hear. It is rare I'm not sure I've ever seen it, to have organizations in which people are quite comfortable telling uncomfortable truths to people in positions of leadership and power. So I think the first thing is you have to recognize if you're in a powerful position, people are going to edit what they tell you. They're going to not tell you things they think you don't want to hear. And you have to strive incredibly hard to persuade them that you want to hear the uncomfortable stuff. And they won't believe you until they see other people do it. Um, And you then need to praise and reward the people who do it so that people come to understand that this is a real need, not just a voiced need. Um, I mean, I was very, very fortunate when I was running software companies in the States. um, I had a number of employees that I took to each company that I ran. They knew me very well. I knew them very well. I trusted them. And they absolutely would tell me the truth. And the fact that they did so was helpful, but the most helpful thing they did was model to other people that this was possible and not career-threatening. Because however much you tell people, you know, I won't shoot the messenger, nobody will believe you until they see the messenger bring bad news and get rewarded. Yeah, there's also this halo effect that people ascribe to others the emotions that they feel. So when they deliver bad news, Mm -hmm. that reflects back on the person who brings it. So it's quite a skill to be able to dissociate yourself from that and not to allow that to happen. How do you see leaders managing that kind of difficult relationship? 
Well, I think, you know, I think the best leaders recognize that when somebody brings you a piece of bad news, they're doing that because they're trying to help you. And however irritating and frustrating and disappointing the news may be, actually the first response has to be thank you. Um, I've done a lot of work talking to and working with whistleblowers. And one of the things that's really striking about whistleblowers is that contrary to public belief, whistleblowers are not by nature deviant, difficult, cranky people. They are the most loyal employees. And the only reason they go outside their organization is because nobody will listen to them inside the organization. But you always find with whistleblowers that they have tried to change things and not been listened to before they went outside. So I think, you know, what, what that suggests and what I think is true is that the knowledge you need to lead a great organization is always in the organization. It's there. Your challenge is to bring it to the surface. And I think that is the, the number one leadership challenge. And I think very few companies do it to their own satisfaction. I would echo that entirely. My whole experience in corporate life and why that I got into what I'm doing now is very much because I could see so much talent and so, so much um, that people wanted to give in organisations and there was just no platform for, for them to do it. So yeah. I'm, I'm right with you on that one. Right. Um, changing the subject slightly, you're, you're clearly very passionate about the role of women in business. Mm. You recently wrote that women leaders need to be more than just role models. Would you like to explain a bit more about that? Yeah, um, many years ago, working with Caspian Publishing, we created, together with the CBI, a thing called the First Women Awards. And this is um, a bunch of awards uh, done annually to celebrate high-achieving women. And we always get fantastic nominations. And the and then we draw up a shortlist, and then we interview the people on the shortlist. And there, this is in multiple categories, so science, manufacturing, financial services, public service, all this sort of thing. And the, the absolutely decisive question is always, yes, I can see you've had a fantastic career, you've done really well, what have you done to help other women? And the women who don't win are the ones who say, I've been a role model. The ones who do win are the ones who say, well, I mentored this person and I set up this leadership network and I did this and I did that. And in other words, I created structures to support and help women. And I deliberately went out of my way to support and help women. Um, being a role model, model isn't nearly enough. We found that the progress for women in business is pathetically slow. And being a role model isn't going to speed it up. Saying I've been a role model is just like saying, well, it's been fine for me and I don't really care about other women. And, you know, frankly, one of the things we have to learn from men is that men are very good at mentoring young men. They're very good at helping each other. And we need to get very good at helping each other if we're going to get out of the highly marginalized position in which we still find ourselves. Okay. In your provocatively titled Women on Top, uh, you reveal that in the US, private sector businesses run by women 
have been growing at three times the sector average. Mm. So why is that, do you think? Well, the book really set out to, to ask that question. I think it is really striking that women-owned businesses in the States, um, and I chose to focus on American companies because there is no similar robust data collection in the UK, which is an interesting question all of its own. But um, I set out to answer that because what you found in the States is that women-owned businesses were being created at a real clip. They were more likely to stay in business, they were creating more jobs, and they were more profitable than businesses on average. But they get strikingly less in the way of institutional investment and only something like 3% of all VC funds. So in other words, women-owned businesses not only were doing better, but they were doing better with less. And I thought, well, if you have this outstanding cohort, we could learn a lot from them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everybody could learn a lot from them. Um, So what did I find? Well, I found that certainly women are very motivated to succeed, sometimes because they've had really horrible experiences in their corporate careers. So they have a real drive that goes way beyond just wanting to build a successful company. They really have, they feel a need to prove something about themselves. So that's a big part of it. I think they're incredibly smart at the sectors that they choose. Uh, Women are pretty much the market. I mean, whether you're talking consumer markets or business-to-business markets, uh, because we are consumers, we have a very good understanding of how the market works and where the needs are and actually how bad most business delivery is because we're always at the raw end of it. Um, I think women understand instinctively that the way you grow a business is by growing the people in it. Mm-hmm. Or as one of the um, entrepreneurs that I interviewed for the book, um, Carol Latham, said to me, you know, if you look after the people, the people look after the business. And, um, and the way the business grows is by the people in the business growing. So they understand that people aren't a marginal issue. They are the central issue. Companies don't have ideas. People have ideas. Uh, nobody's loyal to companies. They're loyal to each other, to other people in the companies. Customers aren't loyal to companies. They're, they're loyal to the people who serve them and the experience that they have. So, whereas I would say in many traditional corporations, there's a belief that you know there's the technical piece, which is fundamental, and the people piece, which is a kind of necessary evil. Women pretty much turn that model on its head. Um, I would say also, so what does that mean? It means they pay a lot of attention to culture. They pay a lot of attention to the personal and professional development of their people. They pay a lot of attention to their customers, and they don't regard service as intrinsically demeaning. Um, Their leadership model is strikingly different, which is they don't think they're supposed to be the smartest guys in the room. They think that they need to have the highest achieving team of people in the room. So I would say that they see leadership not as an act of sort of solo heroics, but as an act of orchestration. So they're coming at it from a very different perspective, and I think with a much broader perspective. Uh, So they leave less out. 
They're very good improvisers. They don't think that things are going to go according to plan. And when things don't go according to plan, they don't look around for who to blame. They just get on with it. Um, so I guess what I ended up feeling was that there's nothing in that book that men couldn't do if they took those kinds of behaviors seriously, mm-hmm. which mostly they don't. Okay. Um, who are the women you admire most and what are the qualities you admire about them? Well, certainly Carol Latham, who started a company called Thermagon, um, which I write about in that book, I think is was, as she's retired now, she's an absolutely staggering leader. She stayed at home for 18 years bringing up her kids. She went back to work. She's a chemist. And, um, and I guess this was in the late 80s. And she saw the rise of personal computing and she asked one of the all-time great business questions, which is, this is a growing sector. What are the gating factors? What might stop its growth? And the answer she came up with, as far as PCs were concerned, was heat. That as computers, uh, computing power increased, it meant they were more likely to get hot and when a computer gets hot, it stops. It stops working. So as a chemist, she thought, well, there must be a solution to that. You must be able to invent materials that dissipate heat faster. So she went to her bosses at BP Chemicals and told them her great idea, and they weren't at all interested. So she left and um, started her company to create these materials and manufacture them. And... um, and was staggeringly successful. But when the business really started to take off, she had, she had no investment really. And, um, she was in Ohio. So she didn't, she wasn't sitting in Silicon Valley with tons of people. So basically she kind of opened the back door of her office and dragged in anybody she could find, which by the way, I think is an excellent recruiting strategy. (laughs) most of these were um, Hispanics and Latinos with no education so she put them to work and she got the local school board to provide her with teachers and so the deal was you work here eight hours a day and seven of those hours you work for me and one of those hours you're at school here in the office and as you can imagine, the loyalty and motivation and dedication of her workforce was really completely off the charts. But she proved something which I think is, is really important for leaders to take seriously, which is almost everybody has the capacity. You know, if you're looking for somebody to walk in ready-made, you know, that's just ridiculous. It's a job of a leader to get the best out of their people. And there was nothing Carol wouldn't do to develop her people. And the result of that was one of the most dedicated, motivated workforces you've ever seen. People didn't leave the company, they grew in the company and that made the company grow. So Carol is, is one of my, my heroes, I think. Um, another is probably a woman named Eileen Fisher who runs a very, uh, very successful, highly profitable, well-established um, clothing business in the US. They just in the last couple of years, come to the UK. They have two stores in London. Um, highly collaborative environment. Um, very different way of thinking about business. I mean, the garment industry is an industry characterized by screaming egos. 
And Eileen Fisher's business is one that is quiet, thoughtful, collaborative, and strikingly more profitable than any of its competitors. And if I ask you the same question about men, are there any men that you admire that you would say uh, have those sort of qualities that you would look for? Hmm. That's a really good question. Who are the male leaders that I really admire? I mean, I work with a number of them, to be fair. Um, I do a lot of um, mentoring of senior executives and chief executives, and many of my fellow mentors I have a lot of respect for. Um, all of us are former chief executives. And um, so a lot of my colleagues I'm very impressed by. There's a guy that I met who is the chief executive of Ocean Spray, the cranberry mm -hmm. company. And I've just been writing about the company in my new book. It's a fantastically interesting business. I mean, you'd never know that necessarily. It's one of the biggest and most successful cooperatives in the world. And it's run by a man named Randy Papadellis, who is really one of the most thoughtful, original, low-key thinkers I've come across. And, you know, one of the things I love about him is he doesn't subscribe to this model of leadership as the heroic soloist. It's, you know, he calls himself the chief alignment officer, that his job is to keep everybody pretty much, you know, walking in the same direction. But the way that he does that is by staying in touch with them all. Now, bear in mind, he serves at the behest of 857 Cranberry Farm owners. This is a tough job by anybody's measure. I mean, these people aren't shareholders, they are owners. And he has transformed that company. I mean, it is a miracle of creativity. You know, how much can you do with a bitter little red fruit? He has globalized the business. He's built a spectacular brand. And he has one of the most impressive leadership teams I've ever seen. Okay. And... What do you think are the key things that women can teach their male colleagues about leadership? It's always, always, always about people. Um, that isn't to say strategy doesn't matter, but the strategy doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to people and if it doesn't connect with people. And I think we have... I think we're still stuck in a mental model of business as a machine. And I think that's a mental model that derives from the Industrial Revolution when it worked really well. I think it's now well past its sell-by date and should be recycled. Uh, I think what women have always done is they've thought of their business as a living organism. Every woman business owner or woman leader I've ever spoken to sooner or later talks about the company as their baby. And this isn't sentimental. It's about something as being living, breathing, and changing every day. And once you start thinking of a company like that, that it changes every day is not a problem. It's a sign of health. Mm -hmm. And you start thinking about how do I make this the healthiest, most sustainable organism I can, as opposed to how do I tweak the levers so that it will 
you know, it'll run impeccably with just a little bit of oil here and there. So I think women come at business with just a different mental model that, as it turns out, is much better adapted to a globalized, highly volatile environment that we're living in at the moment. Okay, um, Margaret, one final question. If you could give just one piece of advice to help us become better leaders, regardless of gender, what would it be? Be a great collaborator. Nobody succeeds alone. Mm -hmm. I'm very struck that, you know, everybody goes around bowing down before the altar of Apple and Steve Jobs. And, um, And I'm an admirer of much that Apple has done. But I think it's very striking if you look carefully at Jobs' career. He did great work when he had great people to collaborate with. Great work at Apple with Steve Wozniak. Great work at Pixar with John Lasseter. Great work at Apple again with Jonathan Ive. When Jobs was left to his own devices, as he was at Next, it was a disaster. I don't think anybody succeeds in business alone. So I think the most important thing for leaders to hone is their skills of collaboration. Super. Well, thank you, Margaret, for taking time to share with us some of your thoughts on collaboration, facing challenge and the gender issues affecting the world of leadership. Can you tell us how to get hold of your books? Yeah, they're all on Amazon. Some of them are available as ebooks, but they're all on Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com. Excellent. Well, many thanks once again for a truly inspiring session. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks a lot.